0: Ukraine is a country in Europe. It exists next to another country called Russia. Russia is a bigger country. Russia is a powerful country. Russia decided to invade a smaller country called Ukraine. So basically that's wrong.
1: Welcome to the Lucas Scrobot Show. I'm Lucas Scrobot, and this is where we uncover purpose, pursue truth, and own the future. It is episode 300, <laughs> September 22nd, 2022. Today we put together a special, truly special show. I one of the, my pet peeves, and you might have experienced this as well as your, in your life. Every episode that you have a guest on. The person, the host, will introduce the guests. As, we have a special guest. Well, if every guest is a special guest, then it's really not a special guest. It's just something that you're saying because you don't know what to say. But this truly, this truly is a special episode, episode 300. First, I want to start by saying thank you for all of you who have been around since episode one. Second, I want to say we went through some of the greatest moments from episode 1 to episode 299 actually we we have truly done over 300 episodes we've you know put interviews from other shows that that I've been a part of on the show we've had bonus episodes side B's all all of that so we're actually over the 300 mark but as far as the the official number goes this is 300 but we've gone through not all but we've gone through a lot of those episodes, and we have strung together some of the best moments from the show, from episode one to episode 300. So I hope that you sit back
2: and enjoy this montage of the show. Back to the effects of of media and technology, that's actually a really important point to be made, is that these things, you know, technologies enter the environment, they start changing things. And ultimately they do have really profound economic effects. Um, they have these social effects, economic effects, they'll have political effects and at uh, the highest level, they ultimately even have an effect on how we think about ourselves. Uh, so our ideas and ideals actually shift over time. And, And those are the things you can't see in the moment. Um, because we're all kind of in the water of that stuff, right? The, the environment is immersive, so you can't really see outside of it. But every once in a while you can get a little glimpse of it. And whether that's like the example I gave earlier where I can actually look at my video of me lecturing in 2005 versus 2012 and see like, or 2017 and be like, wow, this is different. Or um, sometimes you just, you know, if you can immerse yourself back in a moment in say the the, early nineties before the internet really took off. Then, then it's all of a sudden like, oh wow, holy, you know, geez, like a lot of things have changed, you know, gosh, we had travel agents in the early nineties, you know, and then, and right. and all that kind of thing. And you start to realize just how quickly, um, how quickly this stuff can shift
3: spiritual impact on mountains even for those who are not you know necessarily religious when you go totally. to a mountain there's a whole different energy that happens there
1: totally um in the spirit realm like that totally yes. has real implications it's there high you, places
3: it's there man you feel it you know no matter you know what, it's
1: not just in like the, the main five religions yes. like you know buddhism yes. mountains huge hinduism islam
3: Christianity, Christianity, and then
1: you look through paganism throughout the ages. It's always the high places, always the mountains exactly, that, that yeah. have something to it.
3: Exactly. A lot of the artists I was also researching, um, One 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 school group of that I liked was called the Hudson River School. Yeah. Um, and they were predominantly artists that tra- tried capturing these essences of the beautiful sublime. And yeah. they have huge, massive like mural paintings of amazing detail of just the mountains and the sky. But, but what I'm trying to say is that... When I started exposing myself more to nature, I wasn't really religious growing up. I mean, I'd pray out of obligation and I'd pray because you know, my friends be like, Hey Abed, come on, Yalla dhuhr, and you'll never say no, because it puts you in a bad yeah. position. I'll do it anyway. But I never really felt it the way I feel it now. You know, nothing, you know, when I was when I was out in nature and even more so when I was alone. I'm trying to pull away all the cushions from
4: my kids. Mm. So it's tough. Believe me, you gotta you gotta get a lot tougher with yourself first. So that you can give your kids this up. So when we're, in, when we're in the garden and I'm playing football with my eldest and kicking it around and he falls over, all I say is, get up. Yeah. I'm not like, oh, you okay? oh you're okay. Right. And like coddle <laughs> him and like so give him this whole like, oh my God, the world's ending. It's like, okay, you fell down now get up. Yeah. And it it's, and it's, seems like so yeah. callous and tough. But what I'm trying to teach him is if you can get up now, you
3: can keep getting up. And right. That's
4: that's how you right. tackle life.
3: Yeah. But yeah, certain things have become taboo over time. And like I told you, it's all, again, become, that's what's creating the erosion that mm. you're talking about. It's not really, um, it's not uh, that the families are not doing enough because lifestyle or et, et cetera. It's because the fundamentals are, that are in place are all interesting, geared towards satisfying society rather than actually forming a family. That's- Wow. Uh, that's how I look at it. But of course I'm painting a very dark picture. There's, there's, a, yeah. there's a lot of amazing people out there who don't think this way.
1: You stand up and you take the vow till death do us part.
3: Yeah, absolutely.
0: Yeah, it's a it's a covenant. It's not a contract, like you know. So that that's the whole thing. You know, with the contract it's it's uh, there is an expiry date to what you're entering into. Mm. When it's a covenant, it's a whole different ball game because it's 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 a it's bigger than a contract. You know, yeah, it's it's something that you're vouching for, something that you're promising for. But because I believe everything that we do in this world starts with the covenant and then a contract.
5: It was all about going from one place to another, trying to find yourself. And at some point, I had that fight within me that, you know, like to do humanitarian stuff. I always had that. Mm-hmm. But because of that aspect of you shouldn't show what you do for others, that kept me away from it. And at some point I'm like, you know what? I'm done. I'm here. This is my purpose. I need to inspire. I need to motivate. I'm just going to show it to people right now. Yeah. And, I, and that's when I started talking about it um, and showing it because I felt like that's my purpose. If when when you find something and and you you're having that struggle and that fight, know that's the one that yeah, is yours.
1: Yeah. I like that. Yeah. It's true when you're when you find that that struggle and fight, that thing that you have to fight to step yes. into that you're fearful of. Yeah. I always say that, you know, it's the the dogs of doom, the dogs of fear that guard the door to destiny. And that it's where we have the greatest amount of fear and struggle and resistance in our life, that's actually a signal that we should probably walk in that direction and go through those doors and overcome those fears. Yeah. Because that's where greatness lies on the other side of those doors. Interesting question that you're asking and a phenomenon that's happening globally. And it's very much kind of a nihilistic Mm.
4: thought (laughs) where,
1: where you're saying, well, what value, yeah. like, well, why even create? Why even, you know, by you producing a single piece of clothing, mm. there is the extreme argument yep. that, well, you're just, you're still adding more waste exactly. into the world. Yep. And, and and the issue that I have, and I understand that this is real, I mean, there's this movement going on right now. I don't remember the exact name, but some sort of nihilism, but it's the extent where, People wish that they weren't born.
6: Oh, <laughs> and
1: they're filing lawsuits yeah. against their parents for having been born.
3: I'm here without my consent, type thing, right? Which I think step <laughs> too far. Uh, but... There's,
1: it's, I think, is way too far. But <laughs> but what I find more interesting, not that it's too far, but that this small seed of nihilism has grown. All right, because it's every thoughts are seeds, right? Mm-hmm. And the, where that thought then leads to, it doesn't end with, well, my piece of clothing yeah. is just adding waste. It's you realizing, well, every time I take a breath, mm. I'm adding waste. So th- the only logical conclusion then would be suicide.
3: Oh.
1: <laughs> no, I'm, I'm serious. I mean, yeah,
3: if we're going to feed that seed, right.
1: If, if And if we're... And we are feeding that seed. Mm-hmm. As a generation, we're yeah. beginning to feed that seed. That's true,
3: yeah. Where
1: we're, where we're, it's it's hard for some people. It's hard for us to see the value of us as individuals, as us as human beings, the value of human life, the value of as you as an individual. Yeah. And sometimes it's, and there's probably a lot of reasons, probably why I don't know why on a on not just you but mm. a generation. There's a lot of people who are questioning and the logical thing is that most people argue is let's have less humans on the earth. Yeah. Let's control population. Yeah. And then it's almost a self-hatred towards humans and this exaltation of nature. that already
3: exist. Yeah.
1: <laughs> yeah. It's like, well, it's better that like the, the dolphin and the whale and the leopard, you know, run free and yeah. I'll just let them eat me.
3: Yeah. I mean... <laughs>
1: but, but it's, but it's true. Yeah. What do you think about that?
3: Um I'm I get it. I get it that if if you have that seed, it will probably lead in that direction. Maybe not necessarily into like the suicide direction, but for me it's led into the direction of
1: that existentialism. Yeah,
3: of, that whole idea of like you really need to think about what you're doing. Is are you actually offering anything to the world I'll be honest with you man a lot of the things you're saying make sense but I would love to hear from a woman that has been through that experience I feel like this conversation we went so deep but it just does it not feel icky to you to talk about this without the presence of someone who has firsthand implication in the matter it feels yeah weird to me
1: you know you're right I like that she's brought it up I am I am so angry that we're not able to have this conversation with the 60 million people who have been killed. I am, I am saddened to know that we're having this conversation and we can't hear from the 60 million babies who were killed in the safest place in the world. I'm saddened that I can't hear the dreams and the stories of those 60 million little boys and little girls and know what they wanted to be when they grew up. You're right. I am sad. I am angry that we can't hear those voices. We can't hear those voices. And I'm grateful that mom, my mom let me wait it around to let let me have a voice. Cuz I survived a holocaust. I survived a genocide one in 3 in America of my generation. One in 3 have lost their lives to abortion. So you're right, I am sad that we can't hear the voice of the people that it actually impacts, because they're dead, they're dead. You found yourself in groupthink and that group think was, we are anxious and we are-
6: Everybody's running, you wake grabbing. up- I mean, you grow up in an environment where everybody's praying. You start, you know, generally praying. You grow up in an environment where everybody's making money, you start chasing money. You grow up in an environment where everybody's right. doing what yoga. what you see you children. Do. Children don't learn by instructions. They learn by observing. Right. If actually, if you think about it, children do nothing for the, you know, for the first maybe year or so when they're babies, all they're doing is actually eating and disposing the food and 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 just having their eyes yeah, wide and true. like, they're actually soaking up a lot more information than you think. All they're doing is processing, processing, and that's why their neurons, the the, the children's neurons, are fired a hundred percent capacity because they're just trying to figure it out. So they use everything by observing and soaking up and soaking up. So if you grew up in an environment where your family was doing certain thing, like it or not, you're gonna end up soaking that up into into your into your own system because that's your startup mode. We need to pursue. Not success, but virtue. Right? We need Damn. to be
1: people of virtue, not people of success. And you oh, know Oh man, that's repeat that again, bro. Virtue just repeat that again people of virtue, not success. Life is hard. And sorrow <laughs> is the access
0: point to creativity, love, and joy. And volunteer. Volunteer in the sharing in sorrow with people who are familiar with sorrow Mm. and you will find that your life is more enriched, that you are more happy, that you are more purposeful, that you have noble pursuits and that that, that will transform not just your own lineage, but the, but possibly if we all do it together, the lineage of the world.
1: About that worldview, like what's so wrong about the fact that, People want to help the disempower, to to help minorities, to um, help no, there's the There's nothing ecosystem. wrong with
6: wanting to uh, help minorities and help the disempowered, but if you are attacking the very notions that make it possible for the poor and the disempowered to become more powerful— Uh, then you are actually destroying the very people that you think you are helping. Wait, wait, can you say that again? if you are going to do that by attacking people who have lifted themselves out of disadvantaged situations and out of poverty situations, then you are committing an injustice to them.
4: There are three
1: levels of abstraction when we view and think and talk about the world. The first level of of abstraction is object, is the objective realm. That's like saying this pencil or this knife, is it morally good or morally bad? That's when we're actually dealing with objects and things and situations in the natural realm with the the most amount of detail and nuance. So, as Aaron said, the the examples I gave We're grossly oversimplified, and that is because I wanted to give in the objective realm a very simple level of abstraction, a very simple way that we can begin to view some of these higher levels of abstractions. The first one is the objective realm, which is saying, is this pencil or is this knife or is this gun good or bad? Well, the thing is, an object can't be good or bad. It is the person acting with a level of morality or immorality that we need to examine. And so i at had times where people will give these like absurd scenarios trying to pin me into a corner. They'll ask me questions about pornography and they'll ask me questions about prostitution and, and all these issues, but they're doing so in a way with all these levels of complication to try to convolute the conversation. This is not what Aaron is doing, but other people have done this to me. And because of that, we need to go to higher levels of abstraction to actually find out how to view the world. So the first level is the object. The second level is experience. Now, this is where we find myth. This is where we find story. This is where we find song. This is where we find most of those cultural themes and nuances. When we watch a movie and there is a moral of the story, that movie, that story, that tale is falls in the experience. So an, an easier way to understand how to view what's happening in the objective realm is to and is through story and narrative and morals and proverbs and parables that help us see kind of those story arcs by which we can understand good and evil, right and wrong, the ways we should and shouldn't act. What is justice? What is mercy? What is righteousness? What is wickedness? And what is corruption? That happens through story that that meta narrative that we can begin to understand. But even in those meta narratives, that is the second level, but there's a higher level. That last and third level of abstraction is concept. In the concept realm, that's where we find values. That's where we find morality. That's where we uh, find axioms and principles by which we live life. We have these really abstract ideas like justice, like mercy. And so, yes, I grossly oversimplified what's happening in the real world because it's not as simple as just two people working at a car dealership. I oversimplified it because I was trying to use a simple example so that we can find out that third highest level of abstraction and begin to focus on what justice is, what judgment is, what truth is, what mercy is. When we understand correctly how to view these values and ideas and these concepts that creates a framework that we can then bring down into the objective realm to actually see what's going on with clear eyes without getting convoluted within with, with all the complications. Because when we can see correctly, we can then really figure out where the lines fall, where is the dividing line between justice and mercy, righteousness and unrighteousness. It comes from that highest level. So that's why I like to always bring it back to frameworks and principles and values up to that third level of abstraction in the concepts, because that builds a worldview or a framework that we can project down into the objective realm to be able to discern whether A gun or a knife is good or bad, whether pornography and prostitution is good or bad, because we've built up a value system at the highest level rather than trying to discern between different shades of gray. Another way that the education system began to be corrupted, particularly higher education, was that as these universities began to grow, the government stepped in and said, hey, we can provide you with government loans. Now, if you think of what a loan is, it is a bank, a private institution, a business lending money to a party that would be able to invest it into an asset and then pay it back. A private business is going to look and say, will you have the ability to pay this loan back in the future? Yes or no? And they're gonna evaluate that situation because they don't want the person defaulting on the loan. Otherwise, they are gonna lose all of their money. So there's this checks and balances that's in place between a private institution when operating correctly, not with greed, and an individual. But when the government stepped in to the education system and said, hey, we can provide all of your students with student loans, Well, all of a sudden, a imbalance, a corruption of power came in because now there is an I need you to need me, a codependent relationship between the education system and the universities and between the government. The government is saying, I will give you, student A, free money. Essentially, for an 18-year-old, it feels like funny money you're going to university, you're not working, you haven't worked a day in your life, and the government's paying for you to go there, in your mind, but you're racking up all of this student debt. And then the government says, and by the way, you cannot default on this student debt. So the government now doesn't care how much money they lend out or what profession they lend that out to. So if it was a private business, Am I going to lend out $500,000 or $250,000 to a student who ends up studying dance theory? Mm, Probably not because I don't think that that person will make enough money in their future to be able to pay back that loan. They're going to default on that loan. Will I lend $750,000 for someone coming out of law school? or someone coming out of as a as a doctor? Yeah, because I know the profession that they're going into, and I can guess that they will probably actually pay back that loan. But the government, they know that everyone has to pay back that loan, so they're willing to just throw money into the system. As more and more money gets thrown into the system, the universities are able to raise their prices higher and higher and higher and higher because the person that's footing the bill right now is the government and they don't care how much it costs. In fact, the more that it costs, the better it is for them because then they get more interest over time. And the student doesn't realize what they are getting into, the relationship that they are about to be locked into with the government, which the relationship is something that the government wants because the government wants the individual to be dependent on them. Tyranny. Democracies are prone to tyranny because the masses rule, especially in a pure democracy, like as Havel writes about in The Power of the Powerless, he writes, in pure democracies that are more parliamentarian, where it's just a pure democracy, whatever the majority says goes, in those systems, absolutely. Tyranny is not far from Getting its grips on a country, on a community, because whatever the majority says goes. And as people, we tend to fall in line with the majority because of peer pressure. It's harder to stand outside of the majority because the majority or the populace then begins to say, well, you're wrong for believing this. How could you even not believe this? How could you stand against these ideas? And what we're seeing right now across the globe, that if you disagree with certain populist ideas, you are labeled, you are name called, you are labeled whether it's racist or against science, you are put in a box and pushed off to the side and the tyranny of democracy begins to rule. Leo Strauss continues in the history of political philosophies to write this. To hold an opinion on an important matter contrary to that of the majority is not merely impudent or unavailing, but even dehumanizing. The power of the majority is so absolute and irresistible that one must give up one's rights as a citizen and almost abjure one's qualities as a man if one intends to stray from the track which it prescribes. The tyranny of the majority over the minds of those who are its intellectual superiors absolutizes the disposition of democracy towards mediocrity. Goes on to give Satan a lap dance and seduce him until the point where he breaks Satan's neck and he takes the throne off of Satan's head and he sits down, on that throne, essentially claiming himself to be God, which is the, uh, really in line with Satanism's theology, that you are your own God. And in Latin, around Satan's throne, is a phrase that says, people judge and condemn what they don't understand. And so again, he's he's making these statements, these deeper statements in the film. Uh, of course, there is the flagrant statement of his sexual orientation and the flagrant statement of saying, hey, this is okay, this is acceptable, this is who I am, and I'm fully embracing it, and I could care less about those people who are judging me because they're judging me because they don't understand me. So that's a one statement that he's clearly making. Though All y'all who are judging me, well, you just don't understand me. And then he goes down into hell, seduces Satan, performing these very, Graphic sexual dances and acts with uh, Satan, or at least implicationally. As I said, it's um, you know stuff that you could see easily on uh, <laughs> on Netflix. Um, I'm pretty sure stuff like that's out there. So, as I said, that's why I'm like, in some ways, I'm confused that we're so shocked by this because it is already so prevalent in culture, not just in. The, the sphere of pornography, which has just invaded every corner of the earth. And as I mentioned, because of pornography, right now we're seeing teenage boys having erectile dysfunction, ED, as teenagers, because they've been exposed to more sexual images in one afternoon than a, a, a man 50, 60 years ago was ever exposed to in their entire life. And it re wires people's brains, and it causes erectile dysfunction, serious problems. So the knowing that that is so prevalent in society, in some ways it's shocking that we are so taken aback by this video, but I think we're taken aback because it is so public, it is so in your face. But he goes on, um, Montero goes on to make this statement that I am, I am my own God, I create my own laws. There is no God. I am God. There is no morality. I choose. I get to say what's right and wrong. And guess what? You get to say what's right and wrong too. Don't let anyone tell you what is true. You live your truth. Don't let anyone tell you what's right or wrong. You get to decide that. Don't let anyone tell you how to live your life. You get to decide that. Don't let anyone tell you what's true. What's reasonable? What's logical? What are the boundaries and virtues of society? Don't let anyone put any sort of virtue on you. You get to decide that for yourself. And if that just so happens to be to fully embrace Satanism, declaring yourself as God and and flagrant um, sexual immorality in living that life, then bravo to you. Bravo. Bravo to you. More raised questions of saying, is Twitter, is Facebook, all are these social media oligarchs like Google and Amazon, are they now at a size where they're really common spaces, common carriers for public discord like utilities? A lot of utility companies are actually owned by private companies, but they are so large and such a a foundational piece of society that they're considered common carriers and with it comes a lot of special provisions but with being a common carrier also means you can't discriminate you you lose some of your abilities of first amendment rights freedom of speech freedom of of deciding who you want to serve or not because you are now like a, a utility connected with and serviced with the government, and there's more government protocols and oversight on those common carriers. So he goes through and makes the argument, and we'll touch on that, but at the very end, I want to get to the very end of the argument, the last paragraph and a half that Thomas Clarence writes, because the case was all around Trump and some people that he blocked. But now Thomas Clarence is making a more important point saying, well, there's a bigger problem at hand, and that is the power that Twitter has. But he says this, but no party has sued Twitter. So he can't make a ruling on Twitter. So in in the United States, the Supreme Court does not make laws. It only decides whether a law is constitutional or unconstitutional. So just to be clear... They this Supreme Court of nine justices in the United States, it's the highest court. They do not have the ability to write a law or make a law, and they can't even decide to challenge a law. All they are there to do is if someone is challenging something that's happened and it goes through all the lower courts, once it gets to the top court, they then decide how to rule on that court and whether it's constitutional or unconstitutional. So what Clarence is saying, Justice Clarence is saying is that no one has sued Twitter, so we can't make a ruling on Twitter, whether it is a a common carrier or not. And then he says, the question facing the courts below involved only whether a government actor, former President Donald Trump, violated the First Amendment by blocking another Twitter user. That issue turns at least to some degree on ownership and the right to exclude. The second court feared That then-President Trump cut off speech by using the features that Twitter made available to him. But if the aim is to ensure that speech is not smothered, then the more glaring concern must preforce be the dominant digital platforms themselves. As Twitter made clear, the right to cut off speech lies most powerfully in the hands of private digital platforms. The extent to which that power matters for the purpose of the First Amendment and the extent to which that power could lawfully be modified raise interesting and important questions. The petition, unfortunately, affords us no opportunity to confront them. What does this mean? It means that Justice Thomas Clarence and the court sees that there are huge issues with the power. That a few individuals who own Twitter and Facebook and Google have, that the power that a few individuals have to silence people is far greater than a government official might have to silence someone. And now the question is, are these companies, are they at the size where they actually need a level of government oversight? Number 10, from a Harvard biologist named George Wald, he estimated that civilization will end within 15 or 30 years unless immediate action is taken against the problems facing mankind. Now, I'm going to bring this up right now, because the first objection that you may be having if you are a climate denier denier See how I did that? You're a climate denier denier. Uh, The first objection that you're going to have is, well, see, they made these warnings 60 years ago. And because we did something about it, we haven't faced all these catastrophic, horrible um, end of the world scenarios. Well, if we look at this chart over here, uh, we see that in the year 1960 society was producing about 10,000 kilotons of CO2 a year. And if you fast forward to 2020, you see that we're creating about 35,000 kilotons of CO2 per year as humanity. That is 3.5 times more than when these prophecies were made. So a lot of these prophecies are contingent upon If we continue down this path, if nothing is done, if we continue down this path, the world will end. The argument that I have seen made against these is, well, we did do something. You know, look at these legislations that were put in place in America, which, by the way, if you're in America, you are only 5% of the global population. Most of the world lives outside America. Glad we settled that point. So there's other nations in the world. There's other places in the world. And praise God, they didn't listen to these, uh, these catastrophic um, prophecies and just hide away in caves and decide to shut down their power plants. But praise God, they actually decided to progress as a society. Now, you might say, well, you know, if you look, you look at the, the carbon per person, we're actually doing, maybe we're doing less. Well, no, that's not true. If you look at the numbers, back in 1960, we had 0.003 metric tons per capita. And now in 2020, we're up to about 0.0045 metric tons per capita. And back in 1960, the population was about 4 billion people. Now we're pushing 8. So humanity has grown exponentially since 1960, and our carbon input has grown. The reason that I say this is because these two data points will undermine all of your objections, your objections of we did something, your objections of, well, we, we're, because of these prophecies, we're able to change the course because we started to get wiser. Now, I am glad that maybe this stopped people from dumping chemicals in rivers and maybe stopped deforestation. I'm glad for these things, but it doesn't change the fact that these prophecies are all off and this whole thing, this whole thing that might be eating your lunch and definitely is eating probably some of your friends' lunches, stealing your lunch money, your milk money, yeah, it's a sham. It moved from being about science and technology to being about rhetoric, elections, and power. The science went from being a tool used to find a solution to a weapon used to silence, discredit, and censor the opponent's point of view. Now, science wasn't the only tool that was weaponized. In fact, race and racism was one of the first tools of rhetoric that was weaponized to not just divide political parties or not just divide uh, America for the sake of uh, election wins, but it was also being used to really divide and fraction the world. Here is MSNBC and CNN in the beginning of this crisis this global pandemic, CNN was using the language, the Wuhan virus and the Chinese coronavirus many times. Here's a series of clips from CNN and MSNBC saying just that.
6: Concern is growing this
4: morning over an outbreak of a new SARS-like virus in China. At least six people have died from the Wuhan coronavirus. The Wuhan coronavirus. The Wuhan
0: coronavirus. The 34 year old ophthalmologist diagnosed Saturday with the Wuhan coronavirus. The Wuhan virus The Wuhan coronavirus. The
5: Wuhan coronavirus. What more can you tell us about the similarities or differences between SARS and the Wuhan coronavirus?
1: So clearly, this was something that was used by CNN many times this was this was a common language that was used across the globe and even today we hear things of the the south african strand we hear things about the india variant we hear things about the uk strand so it's not uncommon to call a virus based on where it originated from but of course it didn't take long before the trump campaign began to use the word Wuhan virus and began to use the word Chinese coronavirus, and CNN quickly changed their tune. Here is also a clip from CNN. This is all happening at a time that we're starting to see a message shift here because you're starting to hear the Republicans, especially Trump Co, calling it the Wuhan or the Chinese coronavirus. They're looking for someone to blame. Uh, it's gonna come across to a lot of Americans as smacking of uh, xenophobia uh, right. to use that kind of term. So here it is. All of a sudden we go from using Wuhan virus, which is it's common sense. I mean, even today we're using the Indian variant. Even today, we're using the South African strand. Even today, we're using UK. We're using geographical locations to denote where something came from. But it moved from being something that was commonplace to all of a sudden now it's xenophobia. Maybe you remember when former President Donald Trump closed down air travel to China. They said, well, that's xenophobic. It's so xenophobic that you would close down air travel from China to America. But now we see that President Biden has done the same thing. He's closed down air travel to India and from India. Why? Because there's an enormous amount of cases that are exploding throughout India right now. It's being ravaged by this strain, this variant of the Indian Wuhan coronavirus. But no longer is that xenophobic, but before it was xenophobic. So it's these inconsistencies within the media. Why? Well, it's for political gain. Earth is finally resting thanks to this pandemic. Maybe, maybe this is a correction, of a population correction. And it r- reminded me of, of the clip from The Matrix where Mr. Smith is, is interviewing Morpheus. And well, here's the clip. I'll just cue it, cue it up and play it for you.
5: Human beings are a disease cancer of this planet. You are a plague,
4: and we
1: are the cure. If you remember in this movie, right, everyone that's plugged into the matrix, they are, are literally plugged into a virtual reality machine. At some point, they opted in to saying, yeah, plug me in, take care of my body, give me food and nutrients, and I'm going to live this mediated reality in this virtual reality machine. And all of a sudden, humans are being harvested and and creating electricity. And Neo and Morpheus are are getting out of the matrix, getting out of this mediated world. And here's Mr. Smith, the the bad guy, saying, humans are the virus. Humans are a
4: disease. It's, It's quite a prophetic
1: film that laid out and really articulated where society and where culture was going, the thought processes of culture, and that in that film, is so poetically put, how we need to wake up to our mediated relationship with the world around us and begin to see what the the world for what it really is, to begin to understand that we are not the virus. The Prime Minister of New Zealand, Jacinda Ardent, said said a real shocker to the media this last week.
3: We will share with you the most up-to-date information daily. You can trust us as a source of that information. Uh, You can also trust the Director General of Health and the Ministry of Health. For that information, do feel free to visit at any time to clarify any rumor you may hear, covid19.govt.nz. Otherwise, dismiss anything else. We will continue to be your single source of truth. We will provide information frequently. We will share...
1: We will continue to be your single source of truth. If you hear anything from anyone else, dismiss it. Dismiss any information that you might hear We will be your single source of truth on this.
5: Philosopher who I think has had the deepest insight into the consequences of denial of free will is Hannah Arendt. Uh, Hannah Arendt um, is a um, philosopher uh, in the 20th century. She originated the term, the banality of evil and she studied uh, Nazism and communism Mm -hmm. and studied totalitarianism. And she was a brilliant philosopher and, She um, described the basic nature of totalitarian government, I think, in a a way that really gets to the heart of what it is. And um, it it takes a moment to kind of go back and see how she looked at totalitarian governments, and we can see how this relates to the the denial of free will. Arendt said that um, there have only been a few basic styles of government that humanity has used over the past several thousand years. There's democracy, there's tyranny, there's dictatorship, there's a few basic ways of organizing people. Um, Virtually all kinds of government before totalitarianism, which is a modern new way of doing it, virtually all kinds of government. looked at stabilizing society by getting a set of laws so we all know the rules, we all play by the rules, we lead our lives in stable, controlled ways. Uh, Even theocracies and so on um, have stable rules, whether they be rules of Islam or rules of Christianity or rules of Judaism. They're they're all stable ways of doing things. He said that the totalitarian idea is radically different. Mm. What the totalitarian idea is, is that, human society is organized not as a stable system of laws or rules, but as a movement, as a, essentially a tidal wave of change in nature. And the essence of totalitarianism is constant movement. We're always trying to to reach the the dictatorship of the proletariat or the domination of the Aryan race or whatever this, this movement is. And he felt that, or she felt that this idea this totalitarian idea that that society wasn't a set of rules but instead was a was a was was a river raging moving really originated with darwin with the whole idea that we are evolving there's a natural selection out there that there's this inherent um evolution of human society built into nature and that we really have no choice but to go with the flow and she said that the totalitarian idea and the, the, the for, for example, Marxists love Darwin. Uh, Engels said really that basically what Darwin did for science, Marx did for history. Yep. Uh, they, so they identified themselves. The Nazis were very big on Darwinian yep. evolution. Um, and it goes along with the totalitarian idea. And Arendt said that the problem is that if you view human society as this river that's flowing, how do you get everybody to flow? I mean, people don't like to flow. People want to keep their traditions. They mm-hmm. want to, you know, they want to have their lives. And she said, what totalitarians do is a, is a few things. The first thing they do is they isolate people. They make people separate from other people. Right. And this isolation makes it difficult. You, you, you can't meet with other people. You can't talk with other people. She said then they paralyze people. By paralyze, she means they keep people from taking any spontaneous action themselves, and they do it with constant terror. She said that terror is, in a totalitarian state, what law is in a democracy or, um, or, 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 or theocracy. That terror is is what freezes people so they can be put in this stream and moved at will. Mm. And uh, she said that the terror, the, the nature of the terror is that it cannot be predictable. She said totalitarian terror is different from any other kind of terror. That is, for example, if you live in just an ordinary dictatorship, you got some dictator. He's not a totalitarian. He's just a strong man. Yeah. You kind of know that if you don't cross the strong man, you're okay. All right, if, 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 if you don't give this guy trouble, he doesn't give you trouble. Um, you know, if you live in a theocracy, if you follow the rules, you'll be okay. said, however, if you live in a totalitarian state, you're never okay. That is, you can be Stalin's closest comrade and you still get put on trial in the show trials.
1: And that's what you happened. Be, and that's definitely what happened.
5: Precisely. In fact, it was often the people closest who ended up in the gulags or getting a bullet in the back of the head, and and she said there was a reason for that. The reason is that the the only way that terror accomplishes its its goals in a totalitarian state is if it is completely unpredictable and people know it, because if you can predict it, you can take action on your own. And the whole point of the totalitarian state is that you must never take action on your own. Mm. You are livestock and that's the totalitarian notion is that you are cattle to be herded you are you and and this is where she said and i quote from her in totalitarian systems guilt and innocence are senseless notions they have no meaning and what she meant was that totalitarians deny free will because if you have no free will you're never guilty because you you didn't choose anything but you're never innocent either you're just cattle she said if you start in a total if a totalitarian system says oh th- uh, this guy's guilty of breaking this law that messes up the system because then people know what law to follow but so she pointed out that in the show trials there weren't really trials about guilt or innocence everybody knew in the very beginning what was going on mm-hmm. this guy was going to get shot the show trial was to terrorize people It was to make people say, hey, that could be me tomorrow. And I didn't do anything wrong, but neither did he. Nobody even knew what they did. They just ended up with a knock on the door and boom, they're on trial and and they're shot. So the denial of free will is the essence of totalitarian management of populations. Totalitarians look at you like cattle. Their goal is to herd you. Uh, a, A communist will herd you towards dictatorship of the proletariat. A Nazi will herd you towards rule of the Aryans. They all have got their, their, their movement, and you're just a cog in that movement, and cogs can never have free will.
1: And one of the things that we have held onto as a truth and as a principle is to not live and not be led based by, on our emotions to not be led based on emotions. I could easily be led based on my emotions right now and just totally give up on life and become depressed and discouraged and adopt a very negative view of my life and my circumstances. But instead of being led by our emotions, which change day in, day out, depending on our circumstances, we must be led by eyes of faith. We must be led by the promises that we believe are over our lives, that by the destiny that we believe are over our lives. We must be led by knowing, knowing in the the faithfulness of the one who created us, knowing and believing and trusting in the love of the one who created us in God. And it's when we are led from that perspective, from from living out of a place of what we cannot see, not what we can see. Because when we live by what we can see, and we're like, "Oh my goodness, it's World war, war three. The stock market's crashing, crypto's crashing. Canada has just gone off the deep end. Uh, the, the everything is going wrong in my life." When we live by what we can see we can't lead. We can't lead ourselves. We can't lead lead others. We are then relegated to lives of trying to fill ourselves with the comfort of this age, trying to get through the week, get through the day. But when we step into seeing a future that is not and living and believing as though it is, then we become leaders. And not only are we able to lead ourselves into those fields, but we can lead other people into the fields of their destiny. And that is who we are. And that is how we will own our futures. That is how I will own my future is not being led by my emotions, but being led by the things that I see with the eyes of my heart, the vision that's before me and the promises that I know are over my life and over each and every one of our lives, that all things work together for the good of those who love God, I know this is a little preachy, but this is kind of preachy to myself, and hopefully it's encouraging to you. So when we face suffering, not just face a hard a hard day, but when we face real suffering, that suffering will produce endurance in us if we choose to endure. And then that endurance will produce character in us if we choose to persevere. And that character in us creates hope, not just hope for us, but hope for other people. And it gives us the ability to lead. And that hope won't put us to shame. That hope won't leave us in a pit of discouragement because God is love and God loves us and will care for us, even in the midst of suffering and hardship and sorrow
0: now everybody's moving into the digital world as if this is some kind of
4: liberation when actually it's a it's a captivity
1: yeah yeah it's a liberation from it's a liberation from the unknown it's a liberation from god if you will it's a liberation from morality it's a liberation from you know, uh, e- e- even in the intro of our, our show, we talk about, you know, truth, what is truth. And I, I get pushback sometimes people are saying like, well, you know, that's, you know, that's not truth. You know, that's just your opinion, or that's just, you know, talk about something scientific, not something that's uh, metaphysical, but it's right. almost as, as if you and give me well, something I, measurable. Yeah. Something <laughs> measurable. But what you're saying is that the truth is more than a bunch of small parts that then are, uh, uh divided and subdivided to its smallest form and then put back together. But it's, yeah. it's something larger than that. And in s- many ways, going to that metaverse is a-, a means to escape the actual reality that we live in and the consequences yeah. of that reality that we live in.
0: Yes. And it's getting. Uh, there are fewer and fewer people who know how to do much in the corporeal world, you know, to to move things around, right? Am I out here in the woods of Virginia? My neighbor next door has a, uh, a heavy construction equipment business and he's, you know, got highway contracts, et cetera, right? Yeah. He can't find people to work. Yeah. He can't find trucks to buy. Hmm. Fuel has gone through the roof. Crazy. Right? He's got a business in the real world, right? Moving stuff around, it's not bits and bytes, it's rocks, you know, and snow (laughs) and, uh, and people, you know, moving stuff, driving stuff, right? It's not all automated. It's not robots. And, uh, those businesses are suffering Mm. because we've lost touch with the corporeal world. You know, we've denied the primacy of the corporeal. And we've bought into the narrative that the measurable and the, the physical is where it's at and that the academy, you know, and the scientists, uh, everybody
1: needs to get an education, you know, be, be have a higher education. 22. Continue discrediting American culture by degrading all forms of artistic expression. An American communist cell was told to eliminate all good sculptures from parks and buildings and substitute sh- shapeless, awkward, meaningless forms. It's very interesting how art translates into the things we value and hold dear and the way we view things in society. BLM was notorious for tearing down any sort of historical or artistic sculptures or forms that had a beautiful artistic expression or told a story throughout history. If you can destroy history, if you can destroy art, if you can move it from something that is beautiful, into something that is dark and chaotic, you can degrade the human mind and and human morality. It's very interesting, the spiritual impact of art. Number 23, control art critics and directors of museum. Our plan is to promote ugliness, repulsive, meaningless art. Fascinating that this is a goal. 24, eliminate all laws governing obscenities. By calling them censorship and violation of free speech and free press. This was largely done and achieved when the Supreme Court made clarifications over obscenity and erotica and free speech censorship, and essentially saying that erotica, pornography, obscenities, it's all covered underneath free speech. And this envelope is continuing to be pushed. Uh, of people saying, oh, it's maps, it's minor attraction persons, a person who is attracted to minors, and how that should be covered under freedom of expression and freedom of speech. But really, it is a strategy to destroy morality in America and the globe. Break down cultural standards of morality by... Promoting pornography, obscenity in books, magazines, motion pictures, radio, and TV. Achieved. You can't go three clicks without the internet on the
4: internet without engaging in that. Seventy
1: here's a stat: 70% of all men 18 to 24 visit at least one adult website every month. Pornography is the biggest. Open door of darkness in people's lives. It, is, it fuels and promotes human trafficking across the globe. And the film industry, media industry is full on in bed promoting this across all media platforms. It's blatant. 26, present homosexuality, degeneracy, and promiscuity as normal, natural, and healthy. Enter LGBTQ plus A2IA plus S. The trans agenda, the LGBT agenda, it is a direct stem from Marxist ideology. 27, infiltrate the churches and replace revealed religion with social religion. Discredit the Bible and emphasize the need for intellectual maturity, which does not need religious crutches. I know many a
4: Christian, I know many a Muslim,
1: who have adopted this point of view, where they've taken parts of their religion, parts of their beliefs, they've written them off, and they've adopted a a religion of social justice, which is not justice at all.
6: Sports Illustrated, it's also highlighting a kind of athleticism in body type. And that's a very specific form of beauty. You have to be young. You have to be female generally. You have to be extremely athletic. You have to be shapely in a very particular way. And that would be with a waist to hip ratio of 0.68, because that's what's been established cross culturally as ideal from the perspective of male, uh, sexual interest, let's say, but that's also associated with fertility. Yeah. Um, and so it's a marker that has a biological basis. And so even if you're a very beautiful woman, you're, you're hard-pressed to be beautiful enough to be on the cover of Sports Illustrated for the swimsuit issue. <laughs> and so it's a, very, it's a pinnacle achievement of sorts. And it's focused on a very idealized and specific form of beauty. And that's obviously exclusionary. It's obviously exclusionary. It excludes Everybody. everyone. Mm-hmm. Right. And, and it does that to highlight a kind of ideal, and that's a particular ideal of beauty. And there are some cultural boundaries around that. So you could say, well, it's a westernized form of beauty. It's like, yeah. And you can point to Rubens' paintings of more plump women mm-hmm. and say, well, there's an exception. It's like, great. You think you're a genius for finding that exception. Good for you. You know the Rubens' painting. Like, more power to you. But that doesn't mean anything at all about the universality of images of beauty. And so the, co- the cover ver- bothered me a lot because it was a cheap manipulation of something that had been working very well for Sports Illustrated. It was also an insistence that all of a sudden this non-athletic body type is as beautiful as the standard swimsuit model for Sports Illustrated. And it's not. It's not as athletic, and it's not as healthy, and that's that. And it's also not arbitrary, and so the whole thing is a lie. And then it's a lie that's a manipulation of that young woman. Now, she partakes in that because she participates in it, but it's still, they're not on her side. They're exploiting her, as far as I'm concerned, and she may be participating in that exploitation, but they're still exploiting her. So don't pull any moral stunts on me because you're irritated about my opinion about the sports illustrated cover when it's bloody clear to anybody with eyes that that was manipulative in 20 different ways. And so, and I'm also not willing to sacrifice these ideals for inclusiveness. It's like, no, not everyone's a genius. No, not everyone's Picasso. No, not everyone's young and healthy. And no, not everyone is a Sports Illustrated swimsuit model, period.
1: This this is the end bit. He really brought it home. No, not, not everyone is fit and healthy. No, not everyone is a genius. No, not everyone is Picasso, as he said. And that is what is happening across... Like, this is a little microcosm of what is happening across this... Uh, across society even with multiculturalism saying that every culture doesn't matter whether it's a cannibalistic culture or a non-cannibalistic culture for instance taking these extremes is equal and beautiful and right and moral because this is what their culture holds valuable and who are we to judge and it becomes so inclusionary there are no longer any standards. there's no longer any morals. There's no longer anything that we can go to try to achieve. Everything is boiled down to the lowest and lowest common denominator and that's just not true. That's not truth. That's not the way that we can uh order and orientate our lives to actually end up living in a way that is truly successful, truly meaningful because we have said there Nothing has meaning. Nothing have, has definition. Nothing has distinction. There are no standards of athleticism. There are no standards of health. There are no standards of beauty. This is the lie that is being pushed on society through these progressive ideologies. And this is, it, it is just one microcosm, one little snapshot of what we're seeing across society. With that, now you can say, well, b- beauty is something that's more than a physical appearance. So you know, maybe maybe she is beautiful. Well, sure. i i will I will concede that point, but I also bring up Dr. Jordan Peterson's point of this is on a swimsuit magazine that is talking about a standard of athleticism. Sports Illustrated. It's about athleticism and athletic ability. And now you're equating. Unhealth with health. You're equating non-athleticism with athleticism. And you're manipulating that standard. Now, when it comes to well, inward beauty, let's say, let's say we're talking about inward beauty. Well, there's this assumption that everyone is equally inwardly as beautiful as the next person. That, well, you're you're all beautiful. You're a king, you're a queen, you're beautiful on the inside, you're fine just as you are. Not true. There are actually some people and some aspects of people, there's aspects of myself that I find actually quite ugly that I look at and I'm like, wow, that is despicable. That, that aspect of me that I struggle with, that's despicable. My, my ability for frustration or impatience, I'm like, oh my goodness, that is, that is despicable. That is ugly within myself. I think it's ugly. So there are, even within inward beauty, there's, there's a set of values. So meekness, that's, that is a sign of inward beauty. Humility, being contrite in heart, being poor in spirit. Gentleness, meekness, kindness. Those are things that are beautiful. Selfishness, not so beautiful. Greed, corruption, hatred. Jealousy, envy, those those aren't so beautiful. Someone who's consumed and, and self-conceited. Do we call that is that is that beauty? Is that as beautiful as someone who is humble, meek, contrite, and giving of heart? No, it's not. But when we dismiss all of that and we say that you're you're perfect just as you are, we lose the teeth, we lose the ability to look and identify issues within society or issues within ourself, whether physical or emotional or mental. And we lose the ability to delineate and discriminate between health and unhealth. And that, that locks us in to paralysis between a nation that has righteous rules. Because the argument is, well, the wicked, the, the wicked are still going to be wicked. Take abortion, for instance. Abortion, ah, you know, we can outlaw abortion, but it's still going to happen. You know, we can't, you can't legislate morality. The the most ridiculous thing ever, ever heard. You can't legislate morality. No, actually, it is the government's job to legislate morality. It's illegal to steal. That's morality. And it's legislated. It's illegal to kill that's morality and it's legislated morality ought to be legislated and if you want to if
4: you i'll say it this way if you live in a country
1: that says you know what we are going to set up wicked rules for instance part of america before it was all of america but now it's praise god only part of america has rules where you can just kill your baby in the womb, up to 39 weeks and 6 days, 7 days, thirty-eight 48 weeks, whatever it is. As long as the baby hasn't taken its first breath, you can rip apart and dismember a baby in its mother's womb.
4: That is was accepted on a
1: nationwide level. If you live in a society that approves of wicked laws, like the dismembering of humans in their mother's womb, then that nation, that society has a level of guilt because you have accepted and and not taken the effort to fight for just and righteous laws in your nation. So therefore you are guilty as a collective, as a society, and you will be judged accordingly. And the nation will be judged accordingly. And those are things that show whether a nation is righteous or or wicked. The legislation that they have and the legislation that they enforce. Now, of course, in places all over the world, even places where abortion is illegal, the argument is: well, even if you make abortion illegal, it's still people are still gonna have it. People are still gonna dismember their children. So why why should we have a rule?
4: Well, because. It, there's a there's a
1: massive difference between a nation that says this is wrong and people still do it. And then they prosecute the people who break the law and saying, you know what? You're right. People are still going to shoplift and steal. So we're going to make shoplifting legal. Let's make it legal. legal. That's a great idea. There's a huge difference in that society in the way that we see whether a nation is just or unjust, righteous or unrighteous, wicked or righteous. That is all for episode 300. Thank you so much for listening. And again, thank you for being here with us for the last, man, started in 2018. So that's four, four years. Uh, What an amazing journey it has been. 300 episodes, four years, and you are with me. And I am very grateful, very grateful for that. Go out this week and own your future.